Where do you anchor your soul when the ungodly rise in storms of anger? A number of you have faced ungodly anger in your workplace, whether that be from your coworkers or your boss. Many of you have experienced ungodly anger through uh, passive-aggressive signs or even direct statements. Some of us have seen ungodly anger in our neighborhoods. Uh, just this past week, ungodly anger was directed at Christians for praying in a public space. A number of brothers and sisters in Christ around the world face ungodly anger on almost a daily basis for their commitment to and confession of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what do, what do they do? What do we do? What do you do when you face the anger of the world? Psalm 36 helps us to answer that question in a way that honors and glorifies God. Without a trace of self-pity for the trial of ungodly anger, David teaches us that the steadfast love of the Lord is the anchor of our souls amid the anger of the world. Last week, we began a series in the Psalms. The Psalms are the poems, they're the songs, they're the the prayers of the ancient people of God, and they transverse the whole range of human emotion from joy and delight to fear and dread. That said, where the Psalms speak of trouble, they also speak of how believers trust the Lord in the midst of that trouble. And that's what we find in our Psalm today. David is troubled by all of the evil around him, but he trusts in the steadfast love of the Lord. The steadfast love of the Lord is the anchor of David's soul amid the anger of the wicked world. Be a good Berean and search the scriptures with me and see if you agree. Follow along as I read Psalm 36. Psalm 36. To the choir master of David, the servant of the Lord. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord Yahweh, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord Yahweh. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. And you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light, in your light do we see light. O continue your steadfast love to those who know you. And let your righteousness and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. Do you see how David describes the anger of the wicked there in verses 1 to 4? And did you notice the sharp transition to the anchor of David's soul? The steadfast love of the Lord there in verse 4. Five. It is God's character and his covenant love that stabilizes David 
and his soul in the storm. And from verse 5 to the end of the psalm, we have this meditation from David on the faithful character of God and the comfort that God's love brings. That's why the message of this psalm is that the steadfast love of the Lord is the anger of the soul amid the anger of the wicked. So, beloved, here's the sermon in a sentence. When the wicked rise in anger, anchor your soul in the steadfast love of the Lord. When the wicked rise in anger, anchor your soul in the steadfast love of the Lord. There should be a full outline provided for you there in the bulletin. It may help you to follow along. Let's begin with our first point, the anger of the wicked. Follow along. I want to read the first four verses of the psalm again. Psalm 36, 1 to 4. I'll read the ascription there too. To the choir master of David, the servant of the Lord. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. In these verses, David tells us that as God's servant, do you see that there in the description? That as God's servant, he is experiencing at least five aspects of the anger of the wicked. Psalms 34, 35, and this one, 36. They all mention that David is God's servant either in the ascription or in the psalm itself. These three psalms, Psalms 34, 35, and 36, tell us that David is God's suffering servant. David is suffering the evil of the wicked. If you were to flip back to the ascription of Psalm 34, you would see that it was related to when David was on the run, when he was fleeing from Saul and his henchmen. Uh, David had been anointed as king. He hadn't taken the throne yet, but he'd been anointed as the king-in-waiting And he grew in popularity among the people. Uh, This angered Saul. Saul not only tried to kill David right there in his house, but he pursued David. In his flight, David came into the clutches of Abimelech. And to escape Abimelech, David had to pretend to be crazy. You can read about that in 1 Samuel 21. Psalm 34 is a psalm where David gives thanks to the Lord for his rescue. But then Psalm 35, the one right before ours, it develops this situation where David is still fleeing... From fi- and fighting off these enemies. While on the run, David prays for God to vindicate him. And then we come to Psalm 36, our psalm. This seems to be David's meditation on the anger of the wicked that he's actually seen during this flight from trouble. And in this psalm, David is revealing that it was God's steadfast love that kept him stable in the midst of that flight. Before David considers the character of God's steadfast love, David considers what characterizes the wicked. Those are the verses we're looking at now. And the first attribute of the wicked is right there, that there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, there's restraining fear, and there's reverent fear. On the one hand, the fear of God doesn't restrain the wicked. The wicked are not terrified by the righteousness and the holiness of God. They feel free to commit whatever transgressions their hearts desire. They are not afraid of God's judgment and wrath. The fear of God doesn't restrain them. On the other hand, it's not surprising, there's no reverent fear of God before their eyes too. There's no fear of God before their eyes in the sense that they don't honor and love and revere God. These men who are after David, 
They don't love the Lord. And it's seen in their hatred of David. There was no reverent fear of God before their eyes. You need to understand that these two actually go hand in hand, this restraining fear and this reverent fear. In fact, your reverence for the Lord will restrain you from evil. Proverbs 8.13 defines the fear of the Lord like this. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. And Proverbs 16.6 says that it is by the fear of the Lord that one turns away from evil. When you reverence the Lord, when you fear Him, you will hate evil and turn away from evil. You will take God's perspective on evil when you fear Him. I wonder, is there the right and appropriate fear of God before your eyes? Does your love for the Lord lead you to turn away from sin? You know, the the New Testament picks up this phrase in verse 1. We actually read it earlier in the service from Romans chapter 3. In Romans 3.18, the Apostle Paul, he quotes Psalm 36.1, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And, And using this verse, Paul makes the case that radical depravity is the natural state of man apart from God's saving power. Paul's making that case in Romans 3 that radical depravity is the natural state of man apart from God's saving power. Apart from salvation in Jesus Christ, there is no fear of God before anyone's eyes. David's situation is desperate, but so is our situation apart from Jesus. We need to be brought by the mercy of God to love and to fear God. The wicked, they do not fear God. In fact, they flatter themselves. Did you notice the connection of eyes between verses 1 and 2? If your eyes are not full of God and His glory, then your eyes will be filled with yourself and your own glory. Verse 2 tells us that the wicked man, he flatters himself in a particular way. He deludes himself into thinking that his iniquity cannot be found out. It's not going to be hated. He rejects the truth of Numbers 32, 32, which says... Be sure your sin will find you out. The wicked man believes the lie that God cannot and does not see everything. Have you ever lived like that? As though God cannot and does not see everything? I have. When I was in kindergarten, my teacher, Mrs. Branch, she turned around to the chalkboard. Uh, We used those back in the 1880s. She turned around to the chalkboard uh, to write something on the board. And then I, I, of course, did something devious. And while still facing the chalkboard, she calls me out on what I'm doing. And I, I, w- I was shocked. And, and I said, how did you know? And Mrs. Branch, without missing a beat, said, I have eyes in the back of my head. <laughs> um, now, to be sure, Mrs. Branch, she doesn't have eyes in the back of her head. But she knew everything that we did. She knew about everything that went on in that classroom. The sovereign God, he sees all. He knows all. When you sin in private, thinking that no one is watching, you are living the lie of Psalm 36.2. If you live as though the sovereign, righteous, holy, and just God does not see your sin and hate your sin, you're only lying to yourself. Don't live a lie. Live in the light. Pray for an accurate assessment of yourself. This doesn't mean that you should loathe who you are. No, but it does mean that you should not lift yourself up. Let others praise you. And when they do, 
Point to the Lord as the giver of the gifts and graces that have been demonstrated in your life. Don't flatter yourself. Instead, fan into flame the praise of God. The wicked man's eyes, we see they are full of himself, and his mouth is full of trouble and deceit. You see that in verse 3 there? This is not surprising. For as our Lord Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Do you want to know the state of your heart? Examine the words that are coming out of your mouth. Jesus says the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. What is your mouth full of? It will tell you what your heart is full of. Is your mouth full of trouble and deceit or grace and truth? Pray for such a fear of the Lord that no corrupting talk comes out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Remember what was said of Jesus in John chapter 7, verse 46. No one ever spoke like this man. May that be said of we who follow Jesus. David, as he is running from evil men, he's observing the evil of men. If David, a man after God's own heart, was sensitive to the evil he heard, then how much more was Jesus, the one who was perfectly righteous in heart, how much more was he sensitive to the evil he heard? I mean, can you imagine what it must have been like for our Savior to live in this world with a constant barrage of profanity and blasphemy and misuse of the Lord's name? Imagine the Lord Jesus walking around listening to the speech in your workplace, in your home. All of the sins of the mouth are against the Messiah. Jesus, he faced the deceit of wicked men directly in his trial. You remember that, right? The witnesses, they lied and they lied. They stirred up trouble with their mouths. Those wicked men who lied about our Savior had, in the words of verse 3, ceased to act wisely and do good. Wicked men are committed to foolish needs, deeds, and good deeds, virtuous deeds, are absent from their lives. Think carefully about what David is saying here. Wicked men have stopped practicing virtue. To put it in the language of 2 Peter 1, verses 5 to 7, an important text the men on the men's street heard, wicked men are not making any effort to practice virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, or love. When you stop pursuing virtue, you inevitably begin to pursue vice. When you stop favoring wisdom and goodness, you have begun to favor evil. And isn't that what we see in verse 4? Just read it again. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. If you're not pursuing virtue, then you're pursuing vice. There's this plotting and planning you see there in verse 4. That's active, isn't it? Like David, Jesus faced the plotting of evil men. This is what we've been thinking about, actually, on Wednesday night. Wednesday night Bible study, right? John chapter 11. After Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, the Sanhedrin began actively plotting to put Jesus to death. They had set themselves in a way that is not good, in a way that's actually opposed to God's law. They had settled in their hearts that they were going to violate the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. That language of setting himself there in verse 4 reminds me of what we read very early on in the Psalter in Psalm chapter 2, verse 2, 
where prophesying of Christ, the psalmist said that the kings of the earth, they set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. David, he is experiencing a foretaste of what our Savior experienced. And this is something that we, the people of God, may experience too. If we are united to Jesus Christ by faith, then we will likely suffer some of the same evils that our Lord Jesus experienced. In fact, Jesus told us this. In John chapter 15, verse 20, 21, Jesus said, Remember the world, remember, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. The wicked do not know God, and therefore they will plot trouble and be unmoved from favoring evil. Now that last phrase of verse 4 almost makes one shudder. He does not reject evil. It said evil is his well-worn path. It's frightening to think that you can become so callous of mind that you don't recognize or reject evil. I mean, this past week, it was frightening to see the crowds of men and women rejoicing in the evil of murdering children in the womb. How can anyone celebrate the murder of unborn babies? How is that not obviously rejected as evil? What do you do when you live in a world of wickedness like that? There's only one answer. You anchor your soul in the steadfast love of the Lord. This is our second point. Anchor your soul. Here we're considering verses 5 to 12 of our psalm. And as you can tell, there's this sharp transition from verse 4 to 5. We immediately move from the love of evil to the love of the Lord. And as a godly man, David knows what to do when the storms around you arise. You anchor your soul in the steadfast love of the Lord. And as a believer, when you are confronted with trouble in this world, you need to learn how to make this immediate turn that David makes here. Turn to the Lord. Yes, you must know what the darkness is like. That's why we have that description in the first four verses. But you don't descend into it. Instead, you bring your soul up to the Lord of love. This is not to deny evil. That's not what David has just done. He's recognized it. But it is to remember that the God of love triumphs over evil in the end. Read verses 5 to 12 with me. Your steadfast love, O Lord Yahweh, extends to the heavens... Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord Yahweh. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. And you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. O oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. Notice what David does in these verses. He reflects on the character of God. He rejoices in God's love. He requests God's preservation and he remembers God's coming judgment. 
This is the right response to the anger of the wicked. This is how to anchor your soul very practically in the steadfast love of the Lord. I mean, consider where David begins. He begins by reflecting on the steadfast love of the covenant Lord Yahweh. Notice there in your Bibles the all capital letters, L-O-R-D. The reason for that capitalization is because that's a translation of the name by which God has revealed himself to his people, Yahweh. And it is significant that David uses Yahweh here. Because when God first revealed his name to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, the purpose was to assure his people, those people who were enslaved in Egypt, that he would keep his promises, that he would rescue them. He's a faithful God, covenant-keeping God. God told Moses, when the, the people of Israel, when they ask you, who sent you? Tell them, Yahweh, the Lord, sent you. Tell them that the God who kept his promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is going to keep his promises to you. David, he's reflecting upon the Lord Yahweh and his loving kindness. He's reflecting upon Yahweh's loyal love, his never failing love. Do you see how this is anchoring to the soul? If our sovereign God's love is steadfast, if God's love for you is stubborn and unrelenting, if God's love for you is unswerving, is that not encouraging? He will never stop loving you. And though David sees evil all around him, he sees that the steadfast love of the Lord runs far beyond the evil of men. Right? God's steadfast love extends to the heavens. Beloved, you may think that the evil of men knows no bound, but that is not true. It is the steadfast love of the Lord for his people that knows no bound. It extends to the heavens. Think about that. Think about the constancy of the heavens. Night after night, stars, they twinkle in the skies. They were there last night. They'll be there again tonight. They're constantly there. And so is God's love for you. In the midst of the darkness of the world, look to the unwaveringly bright love of God. David, he then brings in this parallel idea when he says that God's faithfulness extends to the clouds. Or we're learning something of the vastness, the extent of God's love in these phrases. And God's faithfulness means that God keeps his promises. He makes pledges to his people and he brings them to pass. Men are fickle, but God is faithful. God's faithfulness will ensure not only a rescue of his people, but a retribution against all wickedness and sin. In verse 5, David reflected on God's steadfast love and faithfulness. And then in verse 6, he reflects upon God's righteousness and judgments. God's righteousness speaks to his character as the foundation and fountain of all that is right and just in this world. How do we know what is right and righteous? We look to God and his character and his revelation. And God's righteousness is as firm and as fixed as an immovable mountain. What happens when Mount Everest faces a severe storm? Nothing. It stays right there. And so it is with our God and his righteousness. This is so reassuring when the righteousness of the world, what the world thinks is right and true and just, when that shifts from year to year. Beloved, our God's righteousness never changes because he never changes. 
That is why when the anger of the world rises, you look to God's immutable, his unchanging righteousness to know the way in which he wants you to walk, what is true and just. Our souls are also anchored in the judgments of God. And by judgments here, David is speaking about God's activity in the world and his governance of the world. There are times in which we feel as though the activity of the wicked is overwhelming. It feels as though we are barely afloat in the waters of wickedness. But David is reflecting on the reality that the waters of the wicked are like an above-ground pool compared to the great deep of God's judgments. Just think of Genesis 6, when the corruption of man was increasing on the earth. What happened? Was the world swallowed up by the wickedness of man? Or did the waters of the great deep burst forth and swallow up in judgment the wickedness of the entire world in a flood? Beloved, when the anger of wicked arises, anchor your soul by reflecting on the character of God. He is greater than all of the evil in the world and will one day judge all of the evil of the world. And I mean this as a sincere application for you in the storm. When you feel overwhelmed by the wickedness of the world, do exactly what David does right here. Take a good, long look at the character of your God. Take up a study of God's character. Focus in on an attribute of God's character. Search the scriptures for what they say about God's steadfast love or about his faithfulness, about his righteousness, about his judgment, about his sovereignty. You pick the attribute of God, but take a good, long look and God will anchor your soul. See how God's character is your comfort. That's what happens for David there at the end of verse six. Here David remembers God's mercy God saved both man and beast in the flood of his judgment. God does what is right in judging sin, and he redeems those who have done wrong. Even in God's judgment, there is mercy. And so is it any wonder that David moves from reflecting on God's character to rejoicing in God's love there in verses 7 to 9. David rejoices that God's love reaches him. God's love is not an abstract love, but a love applied. God's love is a personal, and therefore, God's love is precious to David. God's love to an undeserving sinner like David, like you, like me, is worth holding on to in the storm. A.W. Pink once said, Marvelous it is that one so infinitely above us, so inconceivably glorious, so ineffably holy, should not only notice such worms of the earth, but also set his heart upon them. Give his son for them. Send his spirit to indwell them. And so bear with all their imperfections and waywardness as never to remove his loving kindness from them. God's love secures at least three particular gifts we see in our text. Safety, satisfaction, and sight. Do you see them in verses 7 to 9? We find God's loving safety there in verse 7. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. God is our source of safety. In the midst of a wicked world, we take refuge and hide under his wings. This imagery of a a hen giving protection underneath her wings actually emerges in the book of Ruth. What did Ruth, the single widow, what did she do when she needed protection? 
She ran into the arms of Boaz and begged him to spread his wings over her and redeem her from trouble. Ruth, of course, was the great-great-grandmother of the author of this psalm. And you wonder if this truth that God is a shelter, we can hide ourselves under his wings, was passed down even to David. Can't you imagine Ruth saying to her children and grandchildren, little one, do you, do you know what God is like? He is like a strong mother bird who protects her children under her wings. That's what your grandfather Boaz did for me. In fact, God is a more glorious version of my beloved Boaz. Before I sought Boaz for protection, I, I trusted and took refuge in the Lord. When I had nothing, I hid myself under his wings, and he kept me safe. And your grandfather Boaz, he did that for me too. Can you imagine Ruth saying to her grandchildren, God is even stronger than your grandfather. I know you look up to him as a, a strong man of the land, but God is even stronger. He's infinitely stronger than Boaz. You can hide yourself in the strong and sovereign wings of God, and he will keep you safe. Sisters, let me encourage you to teach your children, and perhaps one day your grandchildren, about God like this. God's truth can run down through the generations and bring him glory and make proclaimers of his glory in the years to come. Verse 7, it also reminds me of David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is a ready refuge for the Redeemer. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 37, Jesus, he wept over Jerusalem saying this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Jesus is willing to shelter and shield us from God's judgment. Jesus is our source of safety. Jesus died on the cross so that we might be spared from the eternal wrath of God. And Jesus will keep us eternally safe unto the end. When the anger of the wicked arises, anchor your soul in the steadfast love of the Lord by rejoicing in the safety that God promises his people. God's love is a precious protection. And God's love is the source of all satisfaction. Do you see how the people of God are satisfied by the riches of God there in verse 8? They feast on the abundance of God's house. And they drink from the river of God's delights. What an amazing truth that God would welcome us into his house. God the great king and generous father welcomes us into his house. Perhaps here David is looking back to the satisfying worship that he experienced at the tabernacle. You know, especially during the festivals, Israelite worshipers would have had the privilege of partaking of delicious feasts. They would physically taste and see that the Lord is good while they spiritually feasted on the law of the Lord and its proclamation. Our God loves to satisfy our souls. In Jeremiah 31, verse 25, God promised, For I will satisfy the weary soul, and every languishing soul I will replenish. It should bring us particular joy, that all who seek the Lord will be satisfied by the Lord. And our Lord Jesus promised such a blessing in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, when he proclaimed, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Friend, here is a precious truth. The world never gives, it only takes. That's why you'll never be satisfied in your sin. It will leave you empty, not full. 
And I think you know this deep down. But what do we see here? We see God generously giving and satisfying those who seek him. And God's generosity does not end in this life. No, our God keeps on giving in the worlds to come, infinitely and eternally. All those who rejoice in the love of the Lord in this life will be satisfied by the Lord in the new heavens and the new earth. Revelation 19.9 promises us that we will be invited into God's house and partake of the marriage supper of the Lamb. What is more, this looks forward to the final state of glory where God's people will enter into God's heavenly house and feast with Him. Remember Revelation 21 verse 6. God makes this promise to His people as well. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. When the anger of the wicked rises, anchor your soul in the steadfast love of the Lord by rejoicing in the satisfaction of God in this life and in the life to come. Rejoice in God's lavish love. And notice in verse 9 that David moves from rejoicing in the river of God's delights to rejoicing that God is the fountain of life. And this, David parallels with light and sight. I can't help but think of our Lord Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus told the woman at the well? That woman who had been ensnared in the sin of adultery over and over again. In John chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, Jesus said to her, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That day, the woman of Samaria discovered that Jesus is the fountain of life. Jesus knew her sin, and he loved her just the same. She came to that well with an empty jar and an empty heart. And she left with a heart full of eternal life. Later in John's Gospel, at one of the feasts, Jesus proclaimed, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Have you come to rejoice in Jesus as the fountain of eternal life? Jesus is not only the fountain of eternal life, but he is also the one who gives us spiritual sight. How do you plan to live in this dark and wicked world? If you wish to see spiritually and not stumble, then you must let God be your light. Remember how in verse 4, the wicked did not even seem to recognize and reject evil. How could they? They were living in darkness. This is why the steadfast love of the Lord is precious to God's people. It brings us into the light. It's painful at first to have ourselves and our sins exposed. But we live with greater knowledge of the Lord's love in the light. He brings us into the light. In Him, we can see how He wants us to live and love in His world. And it is perfectly appropriate that David holds these, these ideas of light and life as, as parallel. After all, God Himself is the source of all life, Genesis 1. And in John, 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, it tells us that God Himself is light. Jesus, of course, brought these two ideas together. In John 8, 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. When the anger of the wicked rises, anchor your soul in the steadfast love of the Lord by rejoicing in the sight that God gives. He allows you to see the world for what it really is. He enabled David to see the anger of the wicked for what it really was, an empty blindness. God gives you that same spiritual sight in Jesus. 
And Christian, you should rejoice that God has been so gracious to you. You should rejoice in God's love. And you should request God's preservation. You see there in verses 10 and 11, David asked God to continue his steadfast love. Now think about this. David is praying that God would continue his steadfast love amid the wicked world. David is being hunted and hounded by evil men. But he prays that God would continue his steadfast love. God's steadfast love does not mean that we will escape evil, but his steadfast love ensures that we can endure evil. Evil cannot revoke or remove our eternal inheritance. So we should pray for God's preservation while we persevere and pilgrim through an evil world. We are loved by God and we should not presume upon God's loving protection. God commands us to pray. And Jesus taught us to pray for our own protection. Remember the Lord's Prayer, after all, right? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Isn't that essentially David's prayer here? David prays in verse 11, Let not the foot of the arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. David doesn't want pride and arrogance to overtake his own heart, and he doesn't want the proud and arrogant men who are hunting him to put him to death. God has promised David that he will be king. David has not yet ascended to the throne, so he's holding on to God's promise and he's praying that God would preserve him and thereby preserve his promises. Believer, God has promised that you are and will be a co-heir with the Lord Jesus Christ. You have not yet ascended to glory, so hold on to God's promise as you suffer as a faithful servant. Pray that God would preserve you in faithful obedience to Jesus and thereby preserve his promises. Beloved, do you pray like this? Sometimes we don't pray because we don't really believe in prayer. The story has been told long ago that there was a tavern being built in a town. Uh, There was a group of Christians in a certain church who opposed the building of this tavern. And so they began an all-night prayer meeting, asking God to intervene. Lightning struck the tavern building, and it burned to the ground. The owner brought a lawsuit against the church claiming that they were responsible because they had prayed. Uh, The Christians hired a lawyer claiming they were not responsible. And the judge said, no matter how this case comes out, one thing is clear. The tavern owner believes in prayer and the Christians do not. (laughs) Let us believe in prayer. The Lord is pleased to answer prayer. When the anger of the wicked rises, anchor your soul in the steadfast love of the Lord by praying for God's loving preservation. We should request God's preservation and we should remember God's coming judgment. Verse 12 shows us not merely the end of the psalm, but the end of the entire matter, doesn't it? There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. David, he's speaking here as though he sees the defeat of the evildoers as a thing already accomplished. David is seeing the end with the eye of faith in the present. And when the anger of the wicked rises, this is precisely what you must do too. You must think, what's the end of all things? Where is the Lord taking all things? David sees the hand of God in this. You can see it in that phrase. They are thrust down. They didn't fall on their own. God thrust them down. This is reminiscent of what we read in the very beginning of the Psalter. We're told in Psalm 1, verses 5 and 6, 
that the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Remembering the coming judgment of God guards the children of God from unrighteous vengeance and retribution in this life. Remembering the coming judgment of God gives the children of God patient faith while we wait and trust God as he works out his purposes in this world. God's final judgment is a comfort to his children. It is a comfort to know that wickedness does not have the last word. Rather, the steadfast love of the Lord for his children will have the last word. He will vindicate them in the end and punish all wrong. When the anger of the wicked rises, anchor your soul in the steadfast love of the Lord by remembering God's coming judgment. Now, friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, this song calls for you to choose a side. Will you fall with the wicked or will you rise with the people of God on the last day? Will you be one who rejoices in the steadfast love of the Lord? Or will you be one who rejects the Lord and receives evil? Friend, I plead with you today. There is a God in heaven whose love extends to the heavens. And he made you. He made you in his image to know him, to love him, and to serve him. He made you to be a faithful servant. And yet you, like all of us here, we have turned from him. We've trusted in ourselves, flattered ourselves, exalted ourselves. And decided to live our own way rather than God's way. And because of our sin against God, our rebellion against him, we deserve to face his just condemnation. We we deserve to be those who are thrust down, never to rise again, but to eternally face his wrath for our sin in hell. But the good news of the Bible is, is that God sent his son in love to rescue us from our own wickedness and sin and the condemnation and judgment it deserves. God sent his one and only most beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live the life that we've not lived. Every word on the mouth of the Lord Jesus was a word of grace and truth. Jesus perfectly served our Father in heaven. And he died on the cross, bearing the judgment of God against the sins of all of those who'd ever turned from their sins and trust in his son. He showed his steadfast love In the death of his son, he showed his steadfast love in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the grave three days later. Jesus now reigns, he's ascended in heaven, and he invites all of those, all of us, to turn from our sins and to trust in him for our salvation, to hide ourselves in the shadow of his wings, and so be shielded from God's wrath and welcomed instead into God's house, not as enemies, but as friends. Would you turn from your sin? Would you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ today? Find your refuge in his steadfast love. Anchor your soul in his steadfast love. We should conclude. As an ambassador for Christ, I pray that you would find the steadfast love of the Lord precious. Remember that God's love extends to the heavens and remember that God's love came from heaven. Our Lord Jesus, he lived this psalm for us and for our salvation. Jesus, he faced wicked hearts with perfect righteousness for us. Jesus loved his Father in heaven while men on earth hated him. Jesus humbled himself while men on earth were haughty and flattered themselves in their own eyes. Jesus 
spoke the truth, while men stirred up trouble and spoke lies. Jesus always acted wisely and did what was righteous and good, while the wicked plotted trouble and rejected God's Redeemer. If you belong to Jesus, then you know that Jesus loved you his whole life long. Jesus loved you in death. Jesus loved you in the power of his resurrection. His life proves that his love was steadfast. And now his love is extended back to the throne of heaven, where he pleads for you. And in love, he will come again to bring you to himself. Beloved, when the wicked rise in anger, anchor your soul in the love of the Lord who loved you to the end and will love you through the end. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your steadfast love, especially displayed in the King of love, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray and ask that each soul here now would take refuge in him and serve him until the end. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.